I want to read to you this morning um, part of an obituary. It's actually uh, part of the obituary of a man by the name of Abijam. Abijam was King David's great-grandson. And so this is from 1 Kings chapter 15, verses, just verses 1 through 5. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in the sins of his father that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him in all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Turn to Psalm 51. This morning we're going to continue our study just for a few weeks, then we will get back into John's Gospel, um, walking through a few of the Psalms of Lament. Now fully, something like a third of all of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of Lament. And in some of the other Psalms, there are portions of Lament, crying out to God. I kind of gave you a definition last week that, that I like, it's not unique to me, I don't remember where I found it, but definition for lament is praising God in the dark. I like that. Um, I think it's a good description because sometimes, if we're honest about it, we're forced to praise God in the dark. Sometimes we're forced to praise God through our tears. Sometimes we're forced to praise God through anger, through frustration, through grief. It's not always happy times, right? As a church Uh, As a body here, as a group of believers, the assembly of these saints, us, we've been visited by cancer. We've been visited by death, by divorce, by rebellion. We've been visited by drunkenness and all other kinds of sins that have left us grieved. Some of them you know about, and I trust are actively praying about. That's why you know about them. Others you've never heard of. You don't know that your brothers and sisters are grieving in private. And so we need to be praying for one another. A full one-third of the songbook, as I said, of the people of God, the book of the Psalms, is devoted to praising God in the dark, to lament. And so while not all of us are grieving actively, in fact, some families are rejoicing this morning, all of us will grieve at some point, maybe in the coming days, maybe in the coming months, maybe in just a few years. But all of us will face grief for one thing or another, and because we are sinners, most of us, frankly, will grieve wrongly. And so we need to look closely at God's Word and how God's Word teaches us to praise Him, even in the darkness of grief and suffering. And so Psalm 51, let me just read this psalm and then we'll pray. Psalm 51, the introduction to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. 
Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's just take a moment and pray one more time. We are a needy people, Lord, and so our prayer is that you would give us what we need. We're a hungry people, Lord, and so our prayer is that you would feed us from the bread of life. Feed us from your word today, Lord. Give us the life that we need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, God had graciously given King David everything any man could ever imagine wanting. He had established David as the king over his own chosen people. He'd even promised David, a few chapters before what we read earlier in 2 Samuel, in, in chapters 7 and 8, he had promised that, that one of his descendants would sit on that throne forever. David was wealthy. He had been victorious in battle. He'd established Jerusalem as the capital city for the land of Israel. He'd built a palace for himself, and he was beginning even to gather the materials to draw up plans for a permanent temple dedicated to the worship of the Lord that his son Solomon would then build. Yet like us, David wanted more. In fact, he, he wanted more no matter what the pain of his desire would cause other people, namely Uriah, Bathsheba, or even God. He wanted more no matter what the pain would cost him later in life. And so Psalm 51 was written in the throes of David's sorrowful repentance of his specific sin of adultery and murder, which we read about there earlier. Now, I, I don't know this to be the case for certain, but I think it's possible, I think it's even likely that David first formed these words of Psalm 51 while he was in the midst of his prayers to God that we read in 2 Samuel. In fact, 
just turn over there. Uh, again, I want you to take a look at this next section that I haven't read yet. In 2 Samuel, verse, kind of beginning in the middle of verse 15, but especially verse 16, David is praying. Just think of the emotion going through this so that we can understand the emotions behind Psalm 51. So 2 Samuel 12, verse 15, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, that he, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say uh, to him, The child has died? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped and then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And when his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I think David wrote Psalm 51, the words in Psalm 51, sometime during that week before his son had died. Maybe not. It's a little bit of speculation, but I think it's there. His son isn't mentioned in the psalm. He's clearly praying in this for God to deliver him, himself, but he also knows that God is, is using this incident to discipline David. Nathan made that pretty clear. And God had said, really through the prophet Nathan, explicitly in verse 14, nevertheless, so 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And there's an immediacy in the, in the tone of Psalm 51 that, that probably wouldn't be there if he'd waited very long to compose a, a proper lament, a, a proper song. See, this is not a king confessing. It's not. This is a completely broken man crying out to the God that he knows to be his only hope. The God that he knows to be his only hope. Well, some of, the, some of the late reformers, particularly in England, um, so in the 1600s, 1700s, they called Psalm 51 a, 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 the sinner's guide, they would call it, or, or even the sinner's guide to repentance. This has been, this psalm specifically is one of the more popular of the psalms, maybe only second to, to Psalm 23. It's been sung, it has been prayed, it has been recited for centuries by Jews and Christians. This was the psalm that was most often recited by Christians in England as they were being burned at the stake for their faith during the reign of Queen Mary, Bloody Mary. 
This is also a psalm that is filled with doctrine. It teaches us about God. So, for example, David uses throughout this several different names for God that each emphasize different aspects of his character. We're not going to go too far into that this morning. But it's also the first psalm to specifically mention the Holy Spirit. I like the poetry of this psalm, though. The poetic nature of it. The prayer of it. The emotion in it. We can see in the introduction that it was written to the choir master. That means, imagine this for a second. Imagine instructing the worship leader, Craig or Landon. Imagine instructing them to lead the church in song of your personal repentance. Imagine that. That's what this is. To the choir master. And so I... Because this was originally written as lyrics for a song, I like to think of this as the sound of repentance. The sound of repentance. But nevertheless, this is a prayer of genuine repentance. And I want to stress, before we really even get any further into this, I want to stress the genuineness of this repentance, of David's repentance. Because not all repentance is really genuine. You know that, especially if you've ever been a kid. Right? Or had kids, or even if you've ever been an adult, you understand that not all repentance is really genuine repentance. In his first letter to the church at Corinth, uh, the Apostle Paul rebukes the church. Uh, They were allowing a sexually immoral person to be a full active member of the church, he was unrepentant. And then when he writes his second letter, when Paul follows that up with 2 Corinthians, he commends them for going above and beyond in their genuine repentance. He was calling them to repent as well as to uh, discipline the man who was caught in sin. But they were repentant. And so listen to what he wrote as he commends their genuine repentance. Just a couple of verses. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See what eagerness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to, uh, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent of the matter. And so what we see in Psalm 51 is godly grief uh, flowing out of, spilling out of David's pen, out of his heart. We see a genuine repentance overflowing from a broken heart. He's been confronted, and he's filled with grief, and so he repents. And in this psalm, there are three major requests. So they overlap, they're inseparably tied to one another, yet we can see that David asks God to cleanse him, it's really verses 1 through 7, he asks God to then restore him, verses 8 through 12, and then uh, to use him, near the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 13 through the end. 
And so let's begin here with David's prayer, cleanse me. He prays, cleanse me. Look again at just verses 1 through 7. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Before anything else, David appeals directly to God's character. So before he prays anything else, he appeals directly to God's character. And so as we saw last week when we looked at Psalm 6, and really this passage keeps coming up, um, and so maybe we need to pay special attention to this, but God describes his own character best uh, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, when God himself says, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so David begins here with who God is in his prayer. And he begins when he says, have mercy on me. There's one Hebrew word there. One word, it's Hanan, have mercy on me. It's a deeply emotional cry. He cries out, Hanan, have mercy on me. This is why I believe David was crying out to God while he was lying flat on his face in 2 Samuel 12, verse 16, when he's lying flat on his face and he won't eat. And his elders, his advisors are trying to get him up. And he won't listen to them. And even later, they're afraid he'll be suicidal. They're afraid he will harm himself. He's so grieved. This is his prayer. Have mercy on me. David sought, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Have mercy on me. And then seven days later, the child died. And before even mentioning his sin in this chapter, in this prayer, in Psalm 51, before even mentioning his sin, David cries out to the omniscient, all-knowing Lord for his mercy, for God's mercy. David knows very well that without God's mercy, he would be undone. In fact, we would all be undone, right? Without God's mercy. You may not be guilty of adultery and murder. Um, Probably none of us in here are guilty of adultery and murder. Maybe. David was. Let me remind you, lest we think, well, that's just David. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard it was said to those of old, and he's quoting the law, you shall not murder. 
And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him into court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. So I think we probably can read that with a little bit of guilt feelings. Oh, I guess we are guilty of murder as David was. But that's not the end of the passage. Jesus goes on and he says, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Have mercy on us, O God. Ultimately, this is the cry of all genuinely repentant sinners. Hanan, have mercy on us. But David also knows who he is pleading for mercy from. Right? This is the king. He's pleading for mercy from someone. So in English, you can see there that it says, O God, first line of verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. This is the word Elohim. It's a basic Hebrew word for God. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It just means God. One of the interesting things about this is that it is actually plural. It's a plural word, but it's used in a singular way. So David is not praying to gods. He's not saying if there's anybody up there. He's praying to the God who is three in one. He's praying to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He's crying out, have mercy to God. He's crying out to our triune God. He's saying, Hanan Elohim, have mercy on me, O God. He's pleading and begging with God on the basis of who God is, not on, not on who David is. Anyone else might have said, do you know who I am? I'm the king. This kind of thing doesn't happen to me. I can get away with this. In fact, apparently his advisors knew about all of this. And they were helping him arrange these treacheries. They were letting him get away with it, but God was not. Anyone else might have said to those advisors, to those elders, as it calls them, to the people around him, fix this. Do whatever it takes to make that child better. Get the best doctors in the land. Send them to the Cleveland Do whatever it takes. David calls out to God. And he clings to God's character and his promises. He clings to God's covenants according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Steadfast love, it says there. The NIV, I think, says unfailing love. Both the New American Standard and the King James say loving kindness. And, and to be honest, none of those translations, the, any of them, really get to the heart of the true meaning of this one word. 
and, and I don't mean to just drop a bunch of Hebrew on you this morning. I usually don't do that. But these are important. But this one, this is the last one, this one last word is who David prays to and what he is praying. See, this word is hesed. It's not easily translated. Because here's what the literal translation of this, this one little Hebrew word, it's, it's five letters, H-E-S-E-D. This one little word would literally translate to this. The consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of God. That's God's has said. Now couple this, this has said, with the idea of God's abundant mercy, as he said, or, or, or tender, tender mercies is even a better translation there. That's actually, the word actually means womb. That's actually what tender mercies or abundant mercy right there is. It's the same Hebrew word for womb. It's a, it's a mother's protective care in her own body for her unborn child. David is pleading for cleansing from the God who loves his own children with a protecting, furious, unfailing love. And if you have trusted in Christ, or if you would trust in Christ, that's how he loves you. That's how he loves us as his children. This is how he has promised to view us. This is the God who hears our prayers. Imagine that. This is the God who hears our prayers. This is the God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Listen, the first step toward genuine repentance is understanding who we're really praying to who we are really uh, crying out to, who we must pray to. David will say, look down in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He acknowledges in verse 3, I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he's angry because we've sinned against him. We've soiled his holy name. And our offense is primarily toward Him. Yet He is overflowing with steadfast, consistent, ever-faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious, loving kindness and tender mercies toward us. That's where you should say amen. Can I get an amen? Come on. David is completely transparent in this psalm. And in his transparency, he shows us the true way to pray. The true way to confess our sins and to repent. And so he asks for three things. And really, he's asking for the same thing in, in three different ways. And he uses three different terms for his offense toward God. He says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. It's the same request that he asks three ways. Now to blot out is a, an accounting term that meant to, to cancel the record of debt. To, to just drop wax over those, the record of debt that you have owed to uh, the person that you have borrowed from. That's what they would do. They would blot it out of the book. 
David is asking for God to do what Jesus did on the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, blotting it out, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And of course, David said, blot out my transgression. Transgressions are rebellions or crimes. Yes, it is sin, but is he, really he's being a little bit more specific here. Sin is the general term. He's being a little bit more specific. David has broken God's law, so he specifically has committed adultery and murder. He has broken two of the Ten Commandments right there. He's confessed to being, and he is confessing here, to being a lawbreaker. And he was asking God to cancel the record of debt that stood against him with its legal demands. But he continues. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And again, it's not enough for his debt to be blotted out. He's actually defiled. His sin has made him filthy and he needs to be purified and only God can do this. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. The dye, that is the clothing dye, the color, the dye is in itself immovable. And I, the sinner, have laid long in it till the crimson is ingrained. But Lord, wash, wash, and wash again till the last stain is gone and not a trace of my defilement is left. Wash me thoroughly, he says. Listen to the promise at the end of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7. Just listen to this promise. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Wash thoroughly. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And literally the meaning of the word iniquity is bent and twisted and bowed down. Iniquity is the, is the sin that twists the course of our lives away from God and His standards. David's iniquity was what got him in the, that place of temptation to begin with. Iniquity makes our lives look like Lamentations chapter 3, verse 9, which says, He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. In repentance, God says, as, as Hebrews 12, 13 tells us, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The repentant have straight paths. And so it's important when reading the rest of this psalm to understand just exactly what David is praying for as he continues, cleanse me from my sin. So think of it this way. Wash me is to justification. I'm going to drop a couple of big words on you. We'll talk about it here. Wash me is to justification as cleanse me is to sanctification. Now, sometimes we don't like the, the big words, but it's pretty simple if we stop and think about it. Justification. Wash me. That's canceling the record of debt that stood against him with its legal demands. Justice has been served. You are now declared 
justice, just, righteous. Sanctification is the purifying, the the constant removal of sin throughout the Christian's life, life. It happens all throughout our lives as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Him. And these concepts go together. Wash me, cleanse me. David is praying for pardon and purification. Don't let me fall back into that, Lord. Don't let me walk back down that road of temptation. This third phrase is a little bit more general than the others. Cleanse me from my sin. Clean me from my sin however you can, by any means necessary. Leave no guilt on my soul, is what he is saying. And just listen to the depth of his sin. Verse 3 again. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He knows that he's a sinner. He knows that that this isn't just simply, I've made mistakes. That's something a politician would say, and he's a king. Mistakes were made. People in my administration made mistakes. My advisors should not have done that, even though I asked them to. Mistakes were made. It's not what he says. He says that he's done evil. It's there in verse 4, done evil, done what is evil in your sight. Not only is his sin ever before him, not only is it always on his mind, not only is it always, it is always in his sight. He always is thinking of these things. It is weighing on his soul. Not only that, it goes all the way back to his conception. Now, he's not blaming his mother. He's not blaming his inner child. He's not psychologizing any of this. He's acknowledging that his sin is a part of who he is. And and this isn't unique to David, by the way. He's not just one of these guys that, how bad, I am awful, wretch that I am. This is what the Bible says. Listen to Job chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. says, a man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. So first of all, who is a man who is born of a woman? Everybody. Just want to be clear. He's full of days and a few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Man, in his very nature, is sinner. He is utterly sinful. We're not born with a blank slate, as some would say. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, Job asks. And in acknowledging the extent of his sin here, David also admits that God is perfectly just in his discipline. That's what he's saying there in verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Do you remember what God's judgment was? 
2 Samuel 12, 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The wages of sin is death. And when we cry out in these situations, we all too often blame God. We're angry with God. But David believed that God was justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. And that was his judgment. And then in verse 6, we can see the contrast between the sinful man that we've been reading about and the holy God who loves with a steadfast love. Look again there at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is praying, I repent. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Remove the transgression and iniquity and sin and evil from my heart and teach me, to ma- and, teach me and make me holy. Now hyssop was the plant that they would use to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the altar. He's, he's saying, literally, sprinkle the atoning blood of the sacrifice on me. Nothing but shed blood can take away these sins. Nothing, let me ask you the question. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The reason I spent a lot of time on this first section of David's psalm is because there's no point in continuing the prayer if God's answer at this point is no. Right? If God stops right here and says, no, I'm not going to cleanse you. There's no point in carrying on. But David has prayed to the God who answers prayer. David has prayed to the God who is mighty to save. David has prayed to the God who is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so he prays, restore me. Pick it up in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He has clung to God's chesed. He has begged for mercy. He has confessed the depths of his sin and depravity. But because of God's abundant mercy, David can also pray for restoration. Even in the midst of continuing to plead with God for cleansing. Do you see it in there? He's still asking for cleansing, even while he's asking for restoration. 
Now, this is where we sometimes get things mixed up, I think. See, it's not until, really, verse 8 that we see any glimpse of David's sorrow over his sin. That's not really a bad thing. Now, certainly there is sorrow and grief underpinning all of this psalm. But David does not confuse, as we so often do, he does not confuse feeling sorry with repentance. Nathan did not confront him and say, say you're sorry. That would have been ridiculous. See, we get, we get feeling sorry confused for repentance. Sorrow is just a byproduct of the guilt. And David evidently, he evidently didn't feel sorry until he was confronted by Nathan. Everything was fine until Nathan pointed his bony finger at him and said, you are the man. And can you see that we really can only sense David's sorrow in verse 8 and 12? It, it's underpinning the whole thing, but in verse 8 he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. David wants his sorrow to be replaced with joy. Doesn't that sound good? To have your sorrow replaced with joy. Don't we, don't we want that? Wouldn't you like to feel the joy of God's salvation? Genuine repentance isn't, please make me feel better. It's a confession of sin. It is a desire for a restored relationship. And God's removal of our sorrow is a result of that. See, God has broken him. And he wants to rejoice again. He wants to sing again. He wants to be filled with joy again. He wants to praise his Savior. He wants to worship. He wants to shout for joy at his deliverance. He wants to joyfully praise the one who will save him. Save him not just from this particular sin, but from all of his sins and iniquities, he's praying. Beloved, unforgiven sin is fatal to genuine peace. It's fatal to joy and to salvation. See, if God would not blot out our sin, then he would need to blot out our names from the book of life. But he has promised to not do that. He will never do that. And so rather, he blots out our sin. Instead of blotting out our names, we read Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, which says, But when the goodness and loving kindness, there it is, has said, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's, those words go with Psalm 51 better than any other words in the Bible, I think. That's the gospel. That is what God has done. In in David's repentance, he asks for God to cleanse him. He asks for God to restore him. And then he prays for God to use him. We won't do this justice this morning, but David prays, use me in verses 13 to 19. Let me just read these. Then I will teach transgressors your ways 
Let me start over. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Do not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then will bulls be offered on your altar. Even in the midst of his confession, verse 14, there's still confession. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. He was guilty of Uriah's death. Even in the midst of this, there is still confession. There is still repentance. And yet, David desires to glorify God that others might be saved. That's what he's saying. And he is confident that not only will they be saved, he will be saved. William Plummer in his commentary on the Psalms, he's, a, he's dead. He says this, We must have God's Spirit and be sustained by the joys of religion if we be apt diligent and successful in leading others to repentance. And this is, this is where we get the outgrowth of repentance. This is how you can tell if our repentance is genuine. God always desires our hearts. That's what he is saying in this section. God always desires our hearts, not merely the outward actions, even if those outward actions are religious in some way. Oh Lord, open my lips and, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Rather, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise, and David has a broken and contrite heart. And then don't miss verse 18. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. This seems very random in the middle of here. But David is asking to, for God to do good. To do good on Zion. To do good in Jerusalem, the place where God's people have gathered to worship Him. Much like, much like we've gathered this morning. You know what it looks like when God does good in this context? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, when God does good, it looks like this. Paul tells Timothy, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, granting, uh, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The ultimate good that God can do for us is perhaps granting us repentance that we may be saved. And as a result, after we are saved, then, verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices, burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Beloved, King David prayed this incredible prayer 
after that prophet Nathan pointed his finger at him and said, you are the man. Maybe we need to point some fingers at ourselves and pray and repent. But with the knowledge of who the God is that we pray to, the God whose love is chesed, steadfast, immovable, furious. Let's pray. God, as we see this glimpse into David's heart that you have recorded for us, that you have passed to us and encouraged us to sing and pray and memorize and read and encourage one another with, Lord. We can see the depths of your grace. We can see the the width of your mercy. We can see the height of your loving kindness. Lord, we can see your steadfast love. And so I pray that for those of us who need to confess, repent, and trust in you, that we would understand who this God is that we can cry out to. Transform our hearts, Lord. Encourage us today from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.